My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. So in our consultation processes that I've been involved in since 1997, we keep hearing the same things over and over again. The need to have more adequate income assistance programs, the need to have a minimum wage that's an actual living wage, the need to have more quality and affordable housing and child care. We continue to hear the need for things like rent controls for expansion. That's the voice of Peter Gilmer. He's today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Gilmer is a minister and an anti-poverty advocate. He works for an organization called the Regina Anti-Poverty Ministry, a social justice ministry of the United Church of Canada in Saskatchewan. He traces his passion for social justice both to experiences in elementary school and to the influence of his parents. His father was a United Church minister who was strongly influenced by the social justice-focused social gospel tradition and by his training in the U.S. in the 1950s among peers involved in civil rights issues. Gilmer himself was actively engaged with questions of racial and economic justice as a university student and after. When he moved to Regina in 1990, he got involved with the Saskatchewan Coalition Against Racism and served as its director from 1992 to 1995. At the beginning of 1996, he began his employment with the Regina Anti-Poverty Ministry. The ministry got its start in 1971 under the name of the Regina Downtown Chaplaincy. At that point, it was a collaboration among a number of different denominations, and its approach to poverty largely followed a charity and, to a certain extent, community development model. When Gilmer started in 1996, the ministry went through a reorganization to formally recognize some changes that had accumulated gradually and to enact others. For one thing, it became a project specifically of the United Church. And while it continues to reserve seats on its governing board for United Church members and representatives of other denominations, since that point, it has also prioritized the involvement of people with current lived experience of poverty, who since then have constituted at least a third of its board. As well, the organization formally changed its model of ministry to focus on advocacy, both individual and systemic, and public education. These days, it is the individual casework advocacy that takes the bulk of the time of the organization's two staff. They support up to 2,500 people per year in dealing mostly with problems with the province's social assistance system. The group's public education work occurs both inside the church and beyond it. They talk about economic justice and about their organization to church services, communion classes, and church social justice committees, both within the United Church and in other denominations. But they also talk to unions, women's shelters, high school and university classes, and much more. As well, they regularly have placement students who learn through their involvement in casework advocacy, and they run a study circle for people living in poverty. Their systemic advocacy covers a broad range, and generally involves working with other organizations and with people living in poverty to exert pressure on decision makers. At the moment, a particular concern is the recent transition in Saskatchewan from its traditional social safety net to a new income support program. 
According to Gilmer, the new system has far fewer provisions for meeting special needs, and the basic rates have always been woefully inadequate. He said that people who depend on social assistance, quote, whether they're living with significant and enduring disabilities or not, are living thousands of dollars a year below the poverty line, end quote. Over the years, the organization has also been involved in campaigns to raise the minimum wage and for affordable housing and childcare, as well as in issues related to injustices in the tax system, racial justice, and other things. And their long-term vision involves a human rights approach to responding to poverty. Gilmer said that he has sometimes heard the suggestion that there might be people uncomfortable with the faith-based character of the organization. And certainly, he acknowledges the involvement of Canada's churches, much like most of this country's powerful institutions, in colonization and other historic injustices. But he says that in practice, the Regina Anti-Poverty Ministry's relationship with the United Church rarely seems to be a problem. They've never proselytized, of course, and in their decades of work, they have developed both a good reputation and a substantial rapport with impacted communities in Regina. Plus, he argues, the fact that they are independent and have never depended on government funding means that they have survived when so many other advocacy organizations that existed in the 1970s and 1980s have long since had to close their doors. I speak with Gilmer about the work of the Regina Anti-Poverty Ministry. My name is Peter Gilmer, and I work as an advocate and minister for the Regina Anti-Poverty Ministry, which is a social justice ministry of the Living Skies Regional Council, which basically represents the Saskatchewan region of the United Church of Canada. I moved towards a social justice focus in life fairly early on through a combination of things, some personal experiences, some growing social analysis, and also through my faith tradition. One of the early formative things for me was that I did go to an elementary school that had a fairly diverse population. And so certainly issues of racism and classism were issues of concern from an early age for me. My parents were certainly a big factor. My dad, the United Church minister who came out of the social gospel tradition, you know, focusing on the social justice aspects of Christianity. In the 1950s, he had gotten a theological degree from Oberlin College, which was one of the first integrated colleges in the United States. And being there in the mid-50s, he was actually a classmate of James Lawson, who was a leader in the civil rights movement. My dad was sort of immersed in that milieu for a while, and then coming back to Saskatchewan, started to have kind of an intensified view, a growing sensitivity towards issues of human rights. Both of my parents grew up in the dirty 30s in Saskatchewan, so they were certainly strong proponents of issues like Medicare and social programming in general. So that influence was certainly there. When I went off to university, I started out in sociology and really kind of focused in on issues of race and ethnic relations and Canadian class structure. And after graduating with a Master of Theological Studies, I spent close to a year in Larange in northern Saskatchewan, working for the Larange Street Ministry, which included being involved in a drop-in centre for youth that were on the street. And, you know, if I had any kind of lingering doubts about just how significant the issue of inequality is in the Saskatchewan context, that kind of drove it home to me. 
I then moved to Regina in early 1990 and became very active with the Saskatchewan Coalition Against Racism, which is a provincial anti-racism coalition, and ultimately was director there from 92 until late in 95. And I started with the Regina Anti-Poverty Ministry in 1996. Also, coming out of a faith perspective, my dad really ingrained in me all the prophetic calls for social and economic justice within the scriptures, and I had a real focus when I was in theology on liberation theology, and was thinking about how it was relevant within a Canadian, particularly within a local or Saskatchewan context. So that faith tradition has also been very significant to me. There's an egalitarian streak in all major faith traditions, as well as through reason to secular societies. Certainly, there's a long history of the United Church's connection with the social gospel, and even though there's so many shameful aspects of both church and society in the Prairie region and across all of Canada in terms of colonization, etc., there is also a progressive strain in Christianity, and certainly the prairies have been no exception and have often played a leadership role in terms of promoting social justice issues. Tell listeners about the history of the Regina Anti-Poverty Ministry. Our forerunner, the Regina Downtown Chaplaincy, was formed in 1971, so 50 years ago, based out of the same office. We're based out of Knox Metropolitan United Church in downtown Regina, which is about as centrally located as you can get in Regina. And the reason for the founding of the Regina Downtown Chaplaincy was that a number of downtown churches were concerned that uh, a lot of their ministry personnel's time was being focused on issues that related to people living in poverty, and they thought it might be best to coordinate efforts. And while it did have some United Church leadership to begin with, it was largely ecumenical with a number of downtown churches involved in its origins. I was hired as of January 1st of 1996. And in 1996, that happened to be the United Nations International Year for the Eradication of Poverty. And we changed the name of the ministry or the chaplaincy and changed our constitution to better express changes that had occurred over the years as we had moved from what was largely a charity and to some extent community development model of ministry to what was clearly an advocacy and education and social justice model of ministry. So we changed our name to the Regina Anti-Poverty Ministry in 96. We also changed our constitution, and with that, we set up a board structure that while as a United Church ministry, we maintained a bare majority of United Church members on the board of the ministry, we made sure that positions were set aside for other representations. So that meant that we also included folks from other denominations or faith groups. It also includes representatives of community organizations who are working on poverty issues. And what we would see is perhaps most important is that we've also made sure that there is representation for people with present lived experience in poverty, because as not just a ministry, but also as an anti-poverty organization, we feel it's very important that we have that voice at the decision-making table. So we have spots that are reserved for low-income volunteers and activists. 
The way it's worked out is that even within the other categories under United Church board members or community board members or other denominational board members, roughly speaking, we've always had a minimum of about a third of our board that have been people with present lived experience in poverty beyond just our day-to-day casework where we're certainly in touch with the issues that people are facing on a daily basis. It's also a way to make sure that that voice is directed through our ministry. Just to tell you very quickly about the key areas that we work in, right from the beginning of 96, it was identified that we would be focused on three areas. The first is what we describe as individual advocacy or casework advocacy. This involves ensuring that people in poverty that come to us are being treated fairly by the institutions that they're dealing with and receiving those benefits that they're entitled to. We also do public education on poverty issues within the church and within the wider community. And we're also a social justice or systemic advocacy organization that is promoting alternative policies and social change through a range of social action and research and lobbying, etc. Because of the high level of casework that we do, we've had to focus much of our work time on that. And because of the closure of other advocacy organizations, including the Welfare Rights Center in 2011, we've had to also have a significant focus on income assistance advocacy because there's so few advocacy resources for people in that particular area. So we've kind of had to pull out of other forms of casework advocacy and focus our attention on provincial income assistance programs. Since 2008, we have been dealing with in the range of 2,000 to 2,500 cases per year, which is significant given that we just have a two-person staff. We are helped out by the fact that we frequently have practicum students from the School of Social Work and the School of Human Justice or Justice Studies here in Regina. Generally, we'll have one or two placements per semester, and we've also had some through some of the seminaries as well. In a little more detail, what does the casework advocacy involve? As I said, it is primarily income assistance focused. So at present, there is two programs that we're dealing with. The Saskatchewan Assured Income for Disability for folks who've gone through an eligibility process and are deemed to have significant and enduring disabilities. And now we've just transferred, and this is something I'll certainly be talking about, Our traditional income assistance or welfare programs have now been replaced by the Saskatchewan Income Support Program, the only program as of August 31st, along with the Assured Income for Disability. Many of the issues that we're dealing with are things such as people being denied or cut off of benefits, which is obviously something that's going to drive people to seek out an advocate when they're left without any form of income but also if they are maintaining benefits but are having difficulty in terms of rental coverage or utility coverage or because a high number of our clients do have varying forms of disability, making sure that special needs of various kinds that are covered under policy and regulations, that people can access those special needs to meet their needs. Roughly speaking, a typical day would include roughly 10 new contacts from clients, and it's not just within Regina area, but we handle clients within the province from all over. 
And the way that we operate is that we generally try to mediate conflict in a way that's mutually agreed upon. So once we have client consent, we'll be in communication with the ministry to try and resolve the issue. But ultimately, we do represent clients through the social assistance appeal board processes, which allow both the client and advocate, as well as the ministry, to spell out their arguments and an independent appeal board to make decisions. Being as involved as we are in the casework side of things, it certainly gives us a pretty good idea as well about what the systemic issues are and what the social policy issues are. So yeah, we very much connect this aspect of our ministry to both our education and social policy, social justice work. And what have those facets of your work looked like in the last few years? This has involved both education within the church and outside within the wider community. So, you know, we're frequently taking services within the United Church and other churches, but also speaking to youth groups and confirmation classes and social justice committees within the church. But also we frequently are asked to make presentations to labor unions, women's shelters, and a range of high school and post-secondary classes. Our practicum placement program is an important educational component, you know, training advocates for the future. But we also have a monthly study circle, which is for people living in poverty to get together and talk about poverty issues that affect their lives. I know that there's a lot of misconceptions that continue on in amongst the general public. You know, the idea that people on income assistance, that their poverty is their own fault is probably the biggest issue. So one of the things that we really try to focus in on is breaking the myths about people living in poverty and the reality that poverty is a systemic issue and ultimately is a basic human rights violation under international law. One of the things that we've tried to focus in on over the years has been putting issues of poverty that we're dealing with within a human rights framework, whereby we're clearly identifying that social and economic rights are basic human rights. Our dream goal in terms of the systemic advocacy side of things would be to see an act to end poverty in Saskatchewan, which would be looking at putting into provincial law many of the rights that have been identified in which Canada and all the provinces, including Saskatchewan, have agreed to as being basic human rights and putting those into domestic law. So that, for instance, things like the right to an adequate income, the right to a living wage, the right to adequate and quality housing and child care, that these are things which are not just public policy issues, which is the way that they've been dealt with, but that indeed they are basic human rights that governments have an obligation to be upholding or else they're contravening international law. So while the dream goal is ultimately to have an act in place that would legislate these social and economic rights into domestic legislation, the promotion of that act certainly falls into all the categories that we've been hearing over the years as areas that are in need of change. So in our consultation processes that I've been involved in since 1997, we keep hearing the same things over and over again, the need to have more adequate income assistance programs, the need to have a minimum wage that's an actual living wage, the need to have more quality and affordable housing and childcare. 
we've continued to hear the need for things like rent controls, for expansion of social housing, for inspection programs that ensure quality standards are met, and also ensuring that shelter allowances or rental subsidies are such that people can actually afford quality housing. On the child care front, Saskatchewan continues to have the lowest publicly funded child care coverage in the country. A couple other areas that I would mention are the area of equity initiatives, which have always been paramount in our work because you can't really talk about poverty and inequality in Saskatchewan without looking at the reality of colonization and the economic inequalities and poverty faced by Indigenous peoples. So things such as making sure that resources and economic control of land, etc. are in place, but also looking at questions of representative workforces. And of course, that spills over to other groups, persons with disabilities, people of color, women. Questions of employment and pay equity have been areas of concern and things that we think we need to have more solid legislation on. A final area that the United Nations Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights identified in its most recent observations and critique of Canada and the provinces was the need for a fair system of taxation. So making sure that corporate tax rates are higher, that those that are able to pay are paying more. And certainly within the Saskatchewan context, the whole question of getting a better return on our non-renewable resources has been an ongoing issue. So, you know, in the big picture, the reality is is that we've shifted resources, taken more from those that can least afford it and given more to those who need it the least. What are some of the ways that you advocate on these systemic issues? Well, a combination of things. One is to build broader community support around the issues. One of the things, the process that we've used to series of what we used to refer to as anti-poverty parlays and then conferences that would bring together people that were impacted by poverty to look at what we could agree on in terms of what needed to be promoted with government. So working with community partners and people living in poverty, we've identified those through our processes. We've taken them through the courts of the church. So they've become not just our position, but the position of the United Church in Saskatchewan. But also we've reached out to other groups and have certainly worked closely over the years with labor and a range of social advocacy groups to push on the issues. There's certainly areas where there's probably more common interest or easier coalition building. The living wage campaign would be one example because there's both broad public support for it, but certainly support within most progressive organizations, certainly the labor movement, I mean, on the fight for 15 and for a living wage that would be based on cost of living indicators is something that we've seen a strong basis of support for in Saskatchewan. In terms of income assistance issues, which are really paramount to us, there's certainly bases of support within church and labor and other community organizations. I do think that a big area where we're going to be able to find common ground in terms of a fight back here is going to be in relation to concerns about the Saskatchewan Income Support Program the Saskatchewan Assistance Plan. Now it's being replaced with the Saskatchewan Income Support Program, which only provides either 860 to meet your needs in the larger cities and 810 in the rest of the province. 
And along with it, one thing that's really noticeable is there'd been a range of special needs that were covered in Saskatchewan Assistance Plan, but there's very few special needs for things like moving grants or emergency clothing grants, etc. in the Saskatchewan Income Support Program. The only victory with this change and carried over to the Saskatchewan Shared Income for Disability was that we had been pushing for an increased wage exemption, meaning that people would be allowed to keep more earned income on the system than they had previously. We had the lowest wage exemptions in the country previous to 2019. So those have gone up both with said and says, but the reality is that for recipients, they're stuck with very limited income to meet their basic needs. So that adequacy piece is really central, and that's one that we continue to lobby government on. We continue to work with community partners to promote the idea of the need for greater adequacy with all programs. Kind of as a first step, we've talked about that there really needs to be a $300 increase in both the SIS and SED programs in Saskatchewan to come closer to filling in the need. But even that, people living in poverty, whether they're with significant enduring disability or not, are living thousands of dollars a year below the official poverty line. A $300 increase, which of course would be the biggest increase by far to this date, but even with that increase, people would still be well below the poverty line. What do you see as the strengths and the challenges related to the faith-based context of the Regina Anti-Poverty Ministry? One of the things that we say about our faith rationale is that we're never trying to proselytize or we're never trying to push our faith beliefs onto anyone else in our work. Within a church setting, we do use it as a rationale, and certainly for us personally with the ministry, we use it as a rationale for why we do what we do. And I think there is a good motivating factor and an ethical underpinning connected to kind of a long progressive prophetic tradition that we're connected to with that. Our offices developed a pretty high rapport with folks who want support for their issues. And I think part of it is just the long history, like through word of mouth and through our work, people know where to go, both in regards to problems that they may be having themselves or in terms of working on social justice issues. The lengthy history has been very helpful for us that way. I think people trust that they know where we're coming from and that we're not trying to lay a religious agenda on them in any form. To be honest with you, though, another strength, and it's become clear to us over the years, is that those advocacy organizations that have been funded by government and other sources have largely fallen by the wayside. One of the reasons why we have so many fewer advocacy organizations standing today than we did in the 70s and 80s is because those organizations that were dependent on government funding ended up ultimately losing their government funding. And so our independence is something that's extremely important to us. On the one hand, it means a lot of work doing fundraising and focusing on trying to keep our doors open, but the upside has been that we don't have to worry about what government or corporate interests think about us because ultimately they're not paying any of our bills. You have been listening to my interview with Peter Gilmer of the Regina Anti-Poverty Ministry. To learn more about the organization, go to antipovertyministry.ca.
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Hey!